Green Teacher's main office is located on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabek, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga peoples. This territory is covered by the Williams Treaty. The strategy that's really been successful for E3 Washington has been, you know, showing up, being in relationship, um, and meeting people that are everywhere and have different ideas and, and different ideologies. And even if you disagree on a topic, being able to have a conversation that is respectful and understand and paint that picture for yourselves about where is there commonality and agreement and where is there not. You know, you're not going to expect to be on court at your very first game. You're going to sit on the bench a while, watch the other players, see what happens, and then your time to actually score that three is going to come up. And that we can be aware and respectful and listen and to really emphasize where our own biases are getting in the way of listening or of including someone's voice. Testing, testing. Hey, I'm Ian. And I'm Sophia. And welcome to Talking with Green Teachers. This is the Environmental Education Podcast, where we discuss recent developments, big ideas, and creative approaches to teaching green. In this episode... Being a little bit more obedient to the natural laws and the natural rhythms and the natural ways that the Earth does things, and patterning our relationships after that, then it starts to become clear how equity and being in right relationship with each other and being in right relationship with each other as represented by our organizational practices, then these worries about not having enough resources actually can go away. Rainwater drips off the leaves of a big leaf maple above you as you crouch down to pick some salmon berries from the shrub at your feet. It's a typically rainy day here at your forest school in coastal Washington state, though come to think of it, it actually hasn't rained for a few days, which is somewhat surprising at this time of year. Sylvia Hadnat and Derek Hoshiko reside in Washington and are the co-chairs of E3 Washington the state affiliate of the North American Association of Environmental Education. They have overseen some innovative work on equity at E3 Washington, and they joined Ian to discuss how we can all make environmental education a more equitable space. On this show, we like to talk about big questions in environmental, outdoor, and sustainability education. And the big question that we're asking in today's show is, how can we make environmental education a more equitable space? And there are so many layers to this. It's very complex. It can be messy. It can be confusing. But we're not going to avoid all that. We're going to take this on directly. And we thought that we would start with opportunity and particularly looking at the organization that both you, Sylvia and Derek, are affiliated with. In fact, you're the co-chairs of the board of E3 Washington, the NAAA affiliate of Washington State in the United States. And your organization has made some tremendous progress. And it's an ongoing journey. And of course, there's never a definitive ending point. But I thought it would be great to hear about some of the progress that you have made. So we'll start with Derek. What has been going on in your sphere? 
particularly over the last two years. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate it. You know, making equity the default has been the practice every day, every week, every month, uh, making it the default that we're always doing our best to keep the equity lens in front of us uh, in all decisions, in all aspects of the work. And uh, I believe that that has affected um, equity initiatives, not only with E3 Washington, but because we're a member organization uh, and because we have representation from a lot of organizations in Washington state on our board and in our committees, it has had an effect on equity initiatives and other organizations and institutions statewide and in our region, not just in Washington state, but because we're also in dialogue with other NAAW affiliates. I think that's had a huge effect. I'd also say that um, opportunities for participation in our annual conference um, and opportunities for our members and, and how uh, just in our own practice, I'll speak for myself in my own thinking, that my thinking has changed and evolved over the last couple of years, even though I've been a long-term practitioner of equity and justice, it's a lifelong journey and we're always learning more. And we've uh, just last year thought differently about how we um, handle fee waivers for memberships and making those more accessible and um, fewer barriers for that. And we've thought more about accessibility for our membership news, membership newsletter and for some of our membership benefits and, and how do we make those available to all while still honoring the need to have paying memberships and, and having member benefits. And lastly, they're, they're uh, always providing opportunities for leadership uh, in our organization's board and in our committees and really making sure that we're lifting up people and giving them a way to be engaged. And we have full board participation. It's completely incredible. And it's, it's a joy uh, and uh, an honor to be a part of E3 Washington and the journey that we are on. Well, that's really inspiring to hear. And you mentioned about how your thinking has changed and how the organization's thinking has changed and some of the adjustments you've made for uh, in terms of accessibility and fees. Can you take us into some of those changes? Very concretely, we used to have a Google form where few people could get their membership fee waived by filling out a Google form. And one of our committee members who also is a practitioner of equity and justice helped us to think about how that form, even though we had it available, uh, was not uh, as accessible, both not easy to find, um, but also that the questions themselves were maybe kind of digging in too much, uh, not really mm -hmm. respecting the person that uh, was applying for that. And rather what we've done instead is it's built into the website itself where uh, when people apply for a membership, they can choose the $0 fee waiver option among all the other options and really giving people the benefit of the doubt that if you're going to choose that, you have a reason to go on ahead. We're not even going to ask questions. And it's less labor for us to administer. Sure. I mean, respecting the personal privacy is certainly a critical element to this. Uh, Sylvia, anything that you would like to add in terms of how this ongoing journey has evolved, both for yourself and the organization over the past couple of years? Yeah, I think one of the things that I would add to what Derek said is that not only are we sort of in conversation with other organizations, but what we're doing, and I'm I'm sharing or I'm borrowing a concept that Octavia Butler put me onto about radical imagination. And so what we're doing at E3 Washington is we're actually imagining a different way of being together and then practicing that different way of being together and saying and being a model that shows other people you can actually change how you operate um, and you can institutionalize 
equity in your policies and your programs. Because I think a lot of people, they feel, they might feel intimidated sometimes by the project of um, making their entire organization equitable. And it is a big project, so it makes sense. But what E3 Washington has done, it has said, okay, perhaps we are intimidated. And also we're going to be brave anyway and do it anyway. We're going to respond in an emergent way to feedback and we're gonna keep growing and including more people. And the cool thing about when you include more people and more people's voices show up, the more diverse perspectives you actually end up getting, the more opportunities you have for feedback and the more opportunities you have to make your organization a more equitable place as well. Feedback is such an important part of all of this. And it's unfortunate. I think the word has taken on sort of a negative connotation in some ways. You know, you get an assignment back at school and the feedback is sometimes written in red pen and it's, it's all the things that you've done wrong. And that's only one part of it. Feedback is just a diversity of thought. Are there any particular pieces of feedback? And I, I know this is maybe unfair to ask you to single anything out, but any feedback that maybe was surprising and has really informed concrete changes in the organization? Well, the most recent example we just talked about, which was the, well, maybe this wasn't the most recent, but the, the one that comes to mind first is the feedback we received about the membership program and, and how accessible it was or wasn't for folks who wanted a fee waiver. And actually another one that comes to mind during our equity committee, one of the newer committee members gave some feedback about the lack of a racial equity policy and implementation plan at the organization. And we had, we had plans that we were carrying out. And also these plans were designed three years ago um, and they were a really good starting point. And so that feedback actually made it so that we are now going to spend some really intentional time this year on creating a policy and an implementation plan that we can actually publish on our website, which is really important, again, uh, to show up and be the model and also for the accountability to the people around us. We're able to actually say, hey, this is what we're doing. This is exactly how we're going to do it. And anybody who wants to is invited to join us and perhaps even um, help shape how we're doing what we're doing. Well, we'll certainly keep tabs on that and look for those updates as they appear on the E3 Washington website. And we will include a link to that in the show notes. Talking with Green Teachers is produced by Green Teacher, a registered charity in Canada that has been enhancing environmental education since 1986. By taking out a subscription, you can join our global network of passionate environmental educators, receive each issue of our quarterly magazine, and gain exclusive access to our vast archive of webinars and magazine back issues. All proceeds go back into the organization to support our vision of helping each successive generation of young learners become more environmentally literate than the last. To learn more, visit greenteacher.com. Oh, a banana slug. It's a big one too, though you've definitely seen bigger. They're always out and about on wet days like today. You collect just as many salmon berries as you need and then move on to the next site. Equity is obviously a, a very complex, multi-layered 
issue, as we talked about at the outset. And if you look at individual people, you can, quote unquote, put people in an infinite number of boxes. And I think we probably make a mistake in some ways with approaches towards equity in just subdividing people without recognizing the pluralistic nature of individuals of society, the amount of overlap. I always talk about Venn diagrams and it's that overlap section of Venn diagrams. It is not just two circles, it's many circles and they're layered on top of each other and it changes and it shifts over time. This provides tremendous opportunity. It also provides an inherent challenge because how do you try to accommodate as many people as possible without leaving folks behind, particularly in the context of a lot of nonprofit organizations that do have finite human and financial resources? Yeah, thanks for this question, Ian. It's a really great one. I think one of the first things that comes to mind for me is that I like to think of all challenges as also opportunities. Hmm. Um, So even though it, it is a challenge that we're faced, it's also an opportunity to create something new, do things in a different way, um, figure out what is going to be more responsive to the people around us. And I think something else important when it comes to not leaving anyone behind is to realize that the answer is really quite simple, and it's just to include everyone. And yet, somehow that answer is also very not simple, (laughs) right? But I think there are ways, and and this is something that we practice at E3 Washington, um, but there are ways to really design environments and structures where all the people that show up are able to belong and make a meaningful contribution. And I think, again, too, listening to the different kinds of feedback and responses that people give and making an authentic effort and a successful effort to implement those feedbacks is really important because it shows people that their voices matter. And I like to think of all the different people that can come and be a part of it, kind of like a biodiverse forest where there are different uh, individuals that might have certain overlapping things that they have in common. And yet each individual has its piece that it's offering to the biodiverse forest that makes the whole thing operate like an ecosystem. And you talk about trying to include everyone and a contrarian might say, well, that's impossible. You can't technically include everyone. But you also mentioned institutional policies and adjustments that you've put in place to try to include everyone as much as possible. What are some of those practices that maybe could be used in other organizations? That's a great question. I'll I'll start with that one. I think we have kind of a yearly schedule at E3 Washington. So the year um, sort of closes every year with our conference, which is statewide. And it's a time where environmental educators from all over the state can come together. And we typically do um, at least a few workshops just about what's going on at E3 Washington. And this is a really a great time for people to show up and say, hey, I would like more of this. I want to see less of this. And so in that way, we're able to, in a relational way, get feedback about what it is that people want to see, which is great for an organization like ours when we're an affiliate for environmental educators, because that way we get to serve them the way they want to be served. So I think to boil it down, creating space for the people that you're serving to actually say, this is how I want to be served. And then when it comes to the operations of our actual organization, there are varying levels of 
commitment and leadership that people can take to contribute and be a part of the team. But everyone's voice at varying levels is considered and included when it comes to long-term planning of programs uh, or strategic planning as well. Anything you'd like to add to that, Derek? Yeah, I have a few thoughts. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so in terms Lots of in tools, there. yeah, there's a lot in there. Um, yeah. Just on the last thing about like what tools you know could be employed to 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 do more in the direction of including everyone, I think. The, the notion of including everyone is really a mindset of how can we include everyone? You know, like you said, obviously you can't have, you know, every resident in the entire state right. uh, involved in every conversation, but I think there can be structures that can do a better job with that. For example, I mentioned the board and committees concept earlier. One of the challenges that we've had is even with a 15 person board, which is a relatively large board, hmm. Uh, we can't really claim to represent the whole state. Um, so what we did is we created board committees and added a lot more people that are non-board member committee members. And now we have over 40, maybe even 50 uh, people on all these various committees in the board. And so then we can more in good, you know, say that we are representing the state. And another kind of approach has to do with how we run meetings, that we can include more people's voices when you use liberated and scalable facilitation techniques. Uh, such as, you know, using the Zoom chat if it's on Zoom or um, such as using breakout rooms or if you're in person using sticky notes and, and having more interactive ways other than just, you know, someone talking and then Q&A. Right. Um, and then on the topic of, you know, what do we mean by including everyone or all, uh, I just have a quick story that uh, an, an anecdote from Oregon. Yeah. They have this program called Outdoor School for All. And you know, you might think that that includes like literally all, but when asked some people who do live in Oregon, when, when kind of just peeling one layer behind that, they said, well, of course we mean uh, outdoor school for all white people. Uh -huh. And and that, that literally people think that. And so, you know, the terminology that we use, even the word all, like Sylvia said, we need to be really clear about what do we mean by that? And so not assuming that we're all on the same page with even the simplest of words, all, uh, is really important. Another thing I wanted to raise is about how systems of oppression are interlinked. So for example, you introduced the question about uh, limited resources and in the context of how can we include, uh, not leave anyone behind. I really believe that truly practicing equity doesn't leave anyone behind. That, that mm -hmm. kind of by definition, equity work and the broader scope of justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, if you're really practicing it right, you're not leaving anyone behind. And that the practices of equity typically benefit everyone. For example, one of the stories about building um, wheelchair accessible ramps off of sidewalks benefits other people too, if they're on a bicycle or if they're catering an event and they have coffee and sandwiches, or if they're you know, going to the airport and they're rolling a luggage. So those ramps aren't just for people with wheelchairs, but by thinking about it, we are including everyone and bringing everyone along. And it doesn't hurt anyone to have a ramp to walk up or down uh, in that case. I also think it's a false narrative that resources are limited. Typically, what I really see in my experience is that privilege is what gets in the way of effectively moving forward. Uh, and that my recommendation is that for educators uh, and people working in the field of education that we listen to student voices and we engage with community and, and by listening and checking our privilege, then we can move forward and that there doesn't need to be 
limited resources, that's really a manifestation of capitalism, which itself is a system of oppression. Certainly, especially in this deregulated neoliberal form that we've increasingly been seeing. So this idea of, or this concept of limited resources, you know, some very pragmatic minded individuals may say, well, there are only so many hours in the day. There are only, you know, so many dollars in our annual operating budget. How can that perspective be managed? Looking for the right word, but how can that perspective be managed if it comes up from somebody who has good intentions, but honestly thinks we just don't have enough hours to maybe parse through all of the feedback we've received, or we don't have enough funding to cover this project and that project? For me, it's the starting point is the is the scarcity mindset of we don't have enough resources. That is often a way to push back and just say, well, your inequity doesn't really matter. And mm-hmm. and that's, as a person of color, that's what I hear. Yeah. What I'd rather hear is, how can we get that done? How can we think creatively to get it done? Or can we change the scope of what that task is so that we can get it done? Or how can we commit to it over time? Or how can we raise funds to get that done? If we lead with our values and not with money and power and privilege, obviously you have to figure out how to make it work with limited resources at the end of the day. But if the starting point is we don't have resources, so we shouldn't even try, that's upholding racism and all the other systems of oppression. And I think one could easily draw a line to a lot of the discussions about climate change mitigation, saying, well, that it's too expensive. Society can't afford to do that. That is one of the the headliners, you could say, in the playbook of the denialists and the defenders of the status quo. And unfortunately, and I don't think this is an inaccurate statement, those who push back against equity are often, in many cases, probably most cases, the same people who are pushing back against climate change and mitigation. And it all sort of fits under this umbrella of defenders of the status quo. Let's just keep going, keep using the systems that are available to us. And What strikes me in in what you just mentioned is it may well be true to say within the current system as it is structured, we don't have the resources to add on another initiative. But what I really liked about how you described that was, well, be creative, think around it, restructure the deck chairs, so to speak, and come up with an innovative solution as opposed to just saying, well, this is the system we have. We can't add another thing on. We don't have enough people. We don't have enough money. Let's rearrange the system that we have so that we can bring these perspectives into it. And ultimately, it does benefit a tremendous number of people. Yeah, I think also, in to add to what you were saying, changing the mindset that rather than adding on another initiative, you want to be able to infuse or evaluate all of your current initiatives for equity. And I think another thing, too, that helps is really looking at this as a business bottom line issue and that equity is actually an important piece of any company, organization, agency or school's business bottom line. And like, again, going back to the biodiversity analogy, when you look at these like mono, like say monoculture versus permaculture, and the way that right, a lawn. Totally, exactly the way that it's really ravaged the land. That's a great analogy for the need uh, for equity. Um, you can see in the way that the earth responds to monoculture firing, it is exploitative of all the resources. It's not reciprocal relationship. 
and those go against um, the natural laws of the earth. The earth is naturally abundant. It's naturally reciprocal. It closes all of its circles. That's the way the earth likes to do relationship. And when we as humans, as one of the, I don't know, arguably most conscious species on earth, you know, can understand and start noticing, oh, this is the way that the earth operates. And being, this word's a little bit controversial, I suppose, but being a little bit more obedient to the natural laws and the natural rhythms and the natural ways that the earth does things and patterning our relationships after that, then it starts to become clear how equity and being in right relationship with each other and being in right relationship with each other as represented by our organizational practices, then these worries about not having enough resources actually can go away because we realize the only way that we're not going to have resources is if we continue in this exploitative way of being with each other. When we show up in reciprocal relationship, whether that's person to person, committee to committee, organization to organization, city to city, state to state, et cetera, the issue and, and of scarcity of resources just kind of melts away. And that's really the foundation of biomimicry, which we just did an episode about, is cool. looking to the processes that are already here, not trying to yeah. reinvent the wheel, is just getting back to that. And I know uh, at your conference a couple months ago in November, you had Robin Wall Kimmerer, the author of Braiding Sweetgrass and Gathering Moss as your keynote speaker. And I mean, Braiding Sweetgrass is, if I had to sum the book up in one word, it would be reciprocity. And that book, that word literally does come up multiple times in that book. And some might say, well, this is a particular ideology, but it really scientifically is how everything works. So it isn't a political or ideological stretch to suggest that this isn't necessarily what we should do, because I think the word should is a very loaded word. It only makes sense to do this from a very left brain standpoint, as well as from a more right brain standpoint. It's not an either or. Of course, we live in this world of false binaries and you know social media discourse, and we'll get into that a bit, is all about this. Did you know that a subscription to Green Teacher includes access to our massive and fast-growing archive of 500-plus ready-to-use activities, lesson plans, and articles? The recording of each new webinar goes into the archive, too, and there are 120 of those and counting. To save you time, because educators never have enough of it, right? Everything is organized by topic and age group. Learn more by visiting greenteacher.com slash subscribe. We also have special rates available for bulk orders from your school, board, district, faculty of ed, or organization. As always, all proceeds go back into the nonprofit. Here, the salmon berries are almost popping off the branches. Indeed, a few have fallen onto the squishy, waterlogged moss below. You resist the urge to pick all of them in one go. Looking at the barrier that is human psychology, and I've done a lot of reading particularly about effective climate change communication and just read Catherine Hayhoe's new book, Saving Us. And she, in addition to being a climate scientist, is also an expert climate communicator. And one of the things she talks about is trying to get beyond that initial barrier of defensiveness that a lot of people have. And the way the human brain is structured, for better or for worse, is we don't do particularly well with guilt and shame, particularly shame. 
And whether it's intended or not, a lot of people get their backs up when they talk about climate change mitigation, and they also can get their backs up when we talk about equity. When we say we need to have a reckoning in our organization, we need to do things differently so that we're bringing more voices into it. And again, the way our brains are structured, a lot of people, they get very defensive when that comes up. And one of the antidotes that Catherine Hayhoe, among many, many other people in the climate communication field talk about is the need to start a conversation with finding some agreement or middle ground. And it can be very simple. It can be talking about a, a shared interest. It can be talking about a hobby. Have you found in instances where that ego comes up, that built-in defensiveness of human psychology comes up? Have you found that starting with that place of unity can be proactive or productive? So I think relationships are my favorite thing. <laughs> so I've spent a lot of time thinking about them throughout my life. As somebody who is very much a city person, uh, very urban, sitting in this position of chairing, co-chairing a statewide organization has really given me a lot of opportunity to think about how can I connect with people who are very different from me, um, even though I was born and raised in a very particular cultural setting that's very different than, you know, settings that people that I now am called to serve uh, were born and raised in. And I agree with the climate scientist, Catherine Hayhoe, about just starting discussions with the point of common agreement or interest. That's actually something that we definitely take time to do at every board meeting. Um, we have check-in questions where we can connect, which is great uh, because it doesn't just start the conversation. Having something to talk about that's not just work, I think actually builds relationship. Yeah. And so... Right. And so for me, I would actually go one deeper, as some EDM people might say. But anyway, I might go one deeper than the author um, of Saving Us and say not just to start with a point of common agreement or interest, but actually to start by developing and cultivating authentic relationship. I think when you are when you are connected to somebody else, whether that is because you share a common interest of loving baseball, or you both know that you want to have a thriving future ahead for your grandchildren. You are better able to communicate with that person across difference and also across conflict as well. And so I, I think what the strategy that's really been successful for E3 Washington has been, you know, showing up being in relationship um, and meeting people that are everywhere and have different ideas and, and different ideologies. Anything you want to add to that, Derek? Absolutely. Um, for me, the key question is when facing these questions, who are we, who are you trying to protect? Mm -hmm. Are we trying to protect the earth or people who've historically been marginalized or who's subject to environmental racism? Or are we trying to protect the people who are getting fragile and defensive? And so to me, I found that there is never a reason to compromise equity values. Rather, there are always reasons for deepening practice and understanding. And I agree absolutely with what Sylvia said, that the relationships are key to that, that through the relationships, then you can build a basis of trust. And even if you disagree on a topic, being able to have a conversation that is respectful and understand and paint that picture for yourselves about where is there commonality and agreement and where is there not? And that kind of impulse reaction that happens in the moment can be disarmed for ourselves when we're able to 
have a respectful dialogue. It can, and it's a balance, right? You, you mentioned about not putting too much focus on folks that do react with a lot of fragility and defensiveness and making sure that we still keep our focus on what we're actually working for is a better future for our children. And that, I think that alone, and this has been written about by many people, that's something that can unite just about anybody. And people might have different thoughts on how best to get there, but it would be very difficult to find someone who doesn't have an interest in that. And that's often cited as the place to go to if other attempts to find common ground fail. But yeah, you know, I've heard some people say, well, it's like trying to walk on eggshells to avoid talking to people who are going to get defensive. And that doesn't sound like a very productive approach because it's like, well, maybe some people do have to deal with guilt. And there's another really good book. I actually have it right beside me here by Rebecca Huntley. She's based out of Australia. It's called How to Talk About Climate Change in a Way That Makes a Difference. And she talks about the similarities and differences between guilt and shame and how guilt is less associated with who we are as a person, the values that we hold dear that give us the sense that we are a good person, whereas shame is more connected with identity. And she talks in great detail and cites a number of in-depth studies about the fact that guilt, when accompanied with emotions such as compassion and pride, can be quite motivating and provoke agency in people, whereas shame, less so. And she talks more in detail about some of the effective language to do that. And part of me is like, it's a shame that we sort of have to tiptoe around this powerful ego of humans. But at the same time, from a very pragmatic standpoint, it's like, well, if these are the tools we're working with. We're working with human psychology, the human brain. We do have to know how it works so that we can approach the most effective ways around it. But again, it's that balancing act of being pragmatic about it, but also not giving too much time to the ego and that hyper-defensiveness. Before we move on to our next topic, do either of you have insights about sort of finding that line, that sweet spot, you could call it? Yeah, Ian, thank you for this question. I, I recently gave a workshop in which I said that I was a huge fan of the social emotional revolution. I'm not sure that anybody else is saying that phrase yet. It might just be a Sylvia-ism. Um, <laughs> but I do think that social emotional wisdom can actually be a really strong foundation for racial equity work. I think it's important to acknowledge the psychology. And I think that there are some tools that we can teach ourselves and each other um, that we can use to actually be able to show up in a more emotionally regulated way. Um, and before I get into those tools, I, I think you what the topic you brought up around shame is very interesting to me as well. And shame being attached to identity. And I'm not, I'm not a white person, so I don't really know what that's like. However, what I understand is that for me, my race is a part of my identity. And so I can perhaps wonder if, uh, if race is a part of a white person's identity, if therefore some part of their identity is also about being exploitative or being showing up in a way that benefits from systems of oppression. I think it might be okay to feel some shame about that. And circling back to the tools I think what it's not good to do is, is to stop at that shame. I um, mean, even if there are pieces of your identity that you actually realize are better to be left behind, it's, I think it can be okay to feel that sense of shame and that sense of guilt, like, 
oh, there are pieces of who I actually think I am that are complicit in systems of oppression. How can I now, in loving grace and compassion for myself, for the earth and other people, uh, move forward and reinvent myself in some ways and show up differently in the world? So some of it might be some of that digging into identity and what is my heritage and, and where do I come from and where am I going? And then some of it also is just learning, I think, a little bit about psychology, a little bit about brain science and the nervous system and what goes on in our bodies, because these um, topics are stressful and they're uncomfortable. And so I think it's good to assume that you might become a little bit or a lot bit emotionally dysregulated during the conversation. And I think it's about how are you going to notice that and be a master over you know, a conscious master over your um, dysregulation or regulation. And the tools are actually really simple. They can be things like a breathing exercise or meditating for 20 seconds, making sure you spend enough time with your friends. Uh, these little things, these little human things that we do um, that we can sprinkle throughout our day, like vitamins, actually keep our nervous systems calm and they create new neural pathways where instead of getting really reactive when we get stressed out, we might be able to feel the stress in our body, notice it, and then say, oh, I need to go take a walk really quick. I'm going to have to circle back to this conversation later. And I think that there are ways you can actually design your racial equity work to be responsive to this too. You know, perhaps if you're going to have a three-hour jam session where you start to brain bloom we're calling it brain blooming now, not brainstorming. Yeah, um, I love it. Yeah. Or you're going to brain bloom on your organization's racial equity work. Maybe you plan for 10 minute breaks on the hour so that people have time to get up and move around, shift some of that energy around, go outside, breathe some fresh air. Perhaps you supply snacks. You know, there are different um, things you can do to just, I think, be responsive to that human psychology because we can't ignore it. It is how we are wired. And mm -hmm. Derek, you're nodding along. Uh, what would you like to add to that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think I think it's really important to discern, building on what Sylvia said, I think it's important to discern what's going on, to ask the question, what's going on here? Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the systems that the identity work and the culture work to understand, I kind of reject the part of the conversation we've had so far that about ego and human nature. I think that absolutely there is some science behind it. And there are elements of human, human nature that are in the ego. But I also think it's important to acknowledge that some of it um, could be a human construct. For mm -hmm. example, race is a human construct. And I think what's happening um, around the polarization and around the ego itself is also a human construct. construct and we can change that. Um, I don't think I, that all of the aspects of ego, which I consider to be a manifestation of patriarchy, uh, are necessary. And I also think that um, some of it is also a manifestation of colonization. So what part are all people everywhere, are all humans in every culture acting and behaving this way because it's human nature? Or is it because we've created a system that in the dominant culture that allows for this, but in other cultures might not be allowed? So I think that it's more mutable than, than that it's human nature. A couple other things I do want to add on are just wanting to acknowledge that we're not always going to be able to bridge divides. Of course. Uh, within every conversation. And and so for me, it's the three questions are, what do I need to be able to show up to this conversation? For me as a person of color, is it safe? Uh, if someone doesn't respect my existence or they're not entering into the conversation in good faith, 
I'm not going to have that conversation. But that kind of leads to another question, which is whose work is it to do? And you know, is it my work to have this conversation? Do I need to challenge myself to step into this conversation because I'm acting from privilege? Or is it actually someone else, someone else's work to do? And then the last one, is it strategic? Is it really a benefit to have this conversation or not? Because uh, we do need to be uh, mindful of our own energy and um, self-care and make sure that we're not putting ourselves into a, a place where we're going to get traumatized or um, exceed kind of some boundaries for ourselves. Yeah, I really appreciate the fact that you bring up this idea that ego might not just be a product of biology. It could very well be heavily influenced by social constructs in certain cultures. And this is one of the reasons we're, we're having this discussion is to unpack this with open minds and in good faith and certain assumptions that I think a lot of us make. And I think this is at the heart of a lot of equity work is trying to be self-aware of certain assumptions that we have, things that we take as given. Well, that's just the way they are. We can't do anything about it. And it's it, that might not be true. And, you know, I, I may have even been guilty and I'm perfectly happy to admit that I may have been guilty coming into this thinking, well, the human psychology is a fixed item. It's based on nature. It's how the human brain works. And I, I'm certainly not qualified to speak to the finer points of that. I'm not a, a psychologist. I'm not a, a neuroscientist. But I think I unconsciously just assumed, well, the ego is an inherent part of human nature without even considering the fact that that might not be as absolute as I may have thought. So I, I thank you for bringing up that perspective. And ultimately, this is the point of having this kind of conversation. We've talked a bit about polarization and certainly the polarization of many parts of society. Certainly we see it in Western society. It's been amplified on social media. It's amplified in a lot of mainstream media. A lot of people are afraid to misstep. People with good intentions who really are trying to be open-minded and want to engage with these difficult discussions what suggestions would you give to organizations or individuals who have that trepidation? I think for me, what helps me out is to assume I'm going to say something that will be taken as offense. And so in that way, I'm sort of emotionally ready for that to happen. And that doesn't mean that I'm preparing for the worst outcome, uh, but it does mean that I am aware of my position in history and that I have been living my life in a, you know, very colorist, racist, sexist, et cetera, world, uh, which means that a lot of those ists and isms have been internalized by me. Mm -hmm. um, and so even though I'm not a white person, that I'm still fully capable of making racist mistakes, or even though I'm not a man, fully capable of making sexist mistakes. And while I don't want to set myself up for failure or even for letting myself off the hook by assuming that I'm going to make a mistake, I think it does help me emotionally prepare and be ready uh, when someone comes to me and says, hey, uh, this actually didn't hit right what you said here. Can we talk about it? And I think um, this also goes back a little bit to what I was saying in the conversations before, but being a master and really being conscious of my own emotional world and what's going on. I felt I was very much freed from my emotions um, and became a master over them when someone put me on to the idea that 
feelings and emotions are a way of my body communicating to my mind that something is going on. Uh, and when I started to understand that, I started to realize, okay, I can interpret my anger um, as a message that something unjust has happened to me. And then I can make a conscious plan about how to actually respond to whatever the thing is that happened um, in a way that's gonna be effective and solve the problem. And I think all of those things are important for people to remember. And again, circling back to what we said at the very beginning, when somebody does come to you with feedback because you did accidentally say something that was offensive, just accept the feedback right. um, and welcome it with open, yeah, welcome it with open arms as an opportunity to change and grow and evolve and get better. And know that there's only two things that are going to happen if you step. It's either going to be good or it's going to be a misstep. <laughs> uh, and either way, it's still an opportunity to celebrate because you took that step forward. So the, I think the only thing that you can do that's wrong, really wrong, is to not try at all. And then again, also doing these actions in a way that is humble and following the actions that have come before you. If you're new to the racial equity work game, you know, you're not going to expect to be on court at your very first game. You're going to sit on the bench a while, watch the other players, see what happens, and then your time to actually score that three is going to come up. And so enter into these spaces humbly, understanding that you probably have a lot of work to do, and you'll find some people that are interested in working with you uh, and be ready to make mistakes and move on from mistakes. We did an episode in the summer with Karen Lai, who's an accessibility consultant in Vancouver, so just north of you, also in the Pacific Northwest. And she talks about the fact that this is an ongoing journey that's messy and complex, and we're going to get stuff wrong, quote unquote. But in her experience, it has often been enjoyable to sort of figure things out together, warts and all. Anyways, I, I, Derek was about to jump in and I, I jumped in beforehand. So uh, back to Derek. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I agree. You're definitely going to make mistakes. And I'll just say that to me, it's important to, I'm, I'm just looking to see if people are taking action. And so it's not their words that matter. I, I want to see action. And I'm always willing to see that something has changed, um, even if I'm re-traumatized by an organization or a person that, that keeps making mistakes. So I want to see that there's action and movement, um, even if it's hard. And one thing that's really important to unpack and understand is that if you get feedback from a student or a community member or someone with a historically marginalized identity, if you get that feedback, they had to do emotional labor. They had to get the courage up. They had to risk potentially retribution and uh, retaliation in order to give you that feedback. And so if you get that feedback, it is an act of love and it needs to be honored and acknowledged and appreciated, even if it's hard. And that when there's one, there's probably 10 more that haven't made that same uh, offering. And so mm -hmm. when I do when I do equity work, I'm looking for patterns of, okay, this one um, survivor of sexual harassment at this local school district came forward and it became a thing. Well, how many other young women are or, or, or other, you know, students dealing with yeah. um, the same dynamic, or if someone is targeted for, or, or is impacted by uh, racism, how many other students of color are dealing with the same thing? And so for me, it's every piece of feedback is, uh, is an insight into what's really going on here. And so I think that's just really important. 
a little piece of advice don't make it about you if you get feedback don't start exactly. falling apart and talking about how like when you were you know growing up or any of that that is that takes the messed up and makes it even worse um so don't make it about you and you don't have to prove to yourself to to the other person that that you're a good person or that you're going to work on it just listen respond and and do the work and you don't need to make dig a hole worse <laughs> that's what i'll leave it there for sure you know you mentioned about how someone has had to go through the emotional labor just to get to a point of providing the feedback that really flies against this incredibly unhelpful and I would say harmful narrative that we see pushed by, again, these defenders of the status quo. And we just hear time and time again, well, all of the, you know, and, and I'm sort of paraphrasing, because all this equity stuff is just, you know, who's the biggest victim? And okay, are, are there some individuals out there who are just trying to be a victim? That's not for me to say. But certainly the example that you gave doesn't sound like somebody who's trying to be a victim. It's somebody, you know, if, if you value personal responsibility and strength and a lot of these values that are celebrated, isn't that a representation of that value that you supposedly hold dear? So it, it always frustrates me when I hear, oh, here comes another victim story. It's like, well, I don't, I just don't think that's an accurate way to frame it at all, frankly. Hi there. You might recognize my voice from such podcasts as the one you're listening to right now. Speaking of podcasts, Green Teacher is involved in another one. It's called Earthy Chats, and you know what? How about I let my co-host, Jade Harvey Barrel, tell you the rest? Take it away, Jade. Thanks, Ian. Hello, all. Indeed, we'd love for you to join us for Earthy Chats our new podcast where we've come together to spend time picking the brains of the brightest and best in environmental education. Like busy bees, we'll be cross-pollinating ideas across our range of interests and knowledge bases to give you the inside scoop on what's new, who's doing it, and how you can do it too. All of the experts featured on the show have resources available Canada-wide in the Outdoor Learning Store. That's Canada's non-profit outdoor resource store. You can check out the range of educator and student resources available at www.outdoorlearningstore.ca. So whether you're a teacher, educator, parent, or just a general nature geek, there'll be something for you to sink your teeth into. Did I cover everything there, Ian? Definitely. Thanks, Jade. So yeah, Earthy Chats. Check it out on your favorite podcast app. Curious as to why this particular shrub is bearing so much fruit, you plunge your hands into the soil. Just as you thought, dark and spongy. Before we finish up, let's talk about tokenism because, again, intentions and actions don't always align and there's often discussion about let's make sure that we are being equitable in a meaningful and authentic way we're not just checking a box so to speak the concept of tokenism has been coming up more and more in recent years for those who are only partly familiar with the term uh, Derek can you give us sort of a working definition of tokenism sure thank you for me tokenism is treating someone as if they uh, represent all of the people of the same identity or the same class of identities or the same group. So, so really just 
each person is an individual. So that kind of relates to the second half of my definition, which is that tokenism is using a person's words or actions to justify or take credit for an action. So that's the other piece of it, that, that you can not just how you treat someone or ask someone to, to be a token, um, but also tokenizing um, them by saying, well, now we have one person of color on our board. So then uh, we're going to take credit for that. Um, right. So really it's the actions themselves that you all are doing in your organizations and in your work, uh, not because you have someone on your board or because they said something. So that's my working definition. And in terms of the action piece of that, how do we do this meaningfully? Yeah, I think it's just really important to recognize that everyone is on a journey and that each person is a sovereign entity worthy of respect. That when you tokenize um, someone, uh, you're disrespecting them. And so, and not everyone is in the same place just because you have a black person as a school teacher. So that doesn't mean that you've made it because you have a black teacher or just because there's, you know, whoever, whatever identity, just because they're there uh, or whatever actions they're taking doesn't mean that there isn't still work to do. And so just, I think it's respect and, and appreciation and let's keep the uh, focus on what, what, what are we doing to take action and create change um, and not making it about an individual? Yeah. Another bit of pushback you often hear is, you know, people who are doing equity work, they're just trying to lump everyone together in these boxes. And what you just said, Derek, completely goes against that. Of course, this is not about making everybody who is of a particular identity the same. It is respecting the sovereign journey of the individual to, to use your words and that can, you know, it's the whole thing that we're losing sight of in our our context of Twitter arguments and Reddit, subreddit arguments. Two things can be true at the same time. You can try to include historically marginalized groups while representing the sovereignty of an individual's journey. And those two things are not mutually exclusive, despite what many, many people or bots on Twitter <laughs> would lead us to believe. And, and we can't lose sight of the fact that much of the quote-unquote discourse online is not even driven by humans. But that's a whole other chestnut to get into, and we just don't have time for that one today. Any final thoughts? We'll start with Sylvia. Final thoughts or advice as we continue expanding this broad discussion that, of course, we could dig so much more into. Yeah, I think... One strategy you can use to ensure and kind of institutionalize that you are making sure you are respecting someone's sovereign and, and individual journey is to come up with some sort of system for evaluating how people are showing up. And that could be as simple as having community agreements and checking in every so often about how people are showing up um, in authentic agreement with those agreements, um, especially, I think this, this can be a really powerful tool to mitigate unnecessary conflict because when somebody is not showing up according to the agreements, then the agreements are the bad guy and not any, either of the two people that are in the situation. Right. Neither of them have to be the bad guy. Uh, the, the agreements can actually buffer that. And that can be a way to avoid tokenism too, because then all the people um, are held to the same agreements. And perhaps some of those strategies for reaching the agreements might be different based on where you are in your journey. Um, but there's a baseline that everyone is held to. 
and to also develop those agreements, again, following the wisdom of people who've been doing this work for a long time. I think some people might feel that racial equity work is new, and that is not true. It's been going on, yeah, for a long time here, and it's really important to follow the wisdom of those who have come before us. Any final thoughts from you, Derek? Tokenism, I would say, I think maybe there are some good intentions behind tokenism that maybe there's a a higher intention that is um, maybe not implemented well, and then it becomes tokenism. So then people kind of fall into a trap. I'm thinking about one way that I think people are potentially well-intentioned, but then end up falling into the trap of tokenism has to do with maybe a switching out of the, the notion of colorblindness and that, you know, there's, I don't see color and all of that. Hmm. And now I want to see color or I want to do something about that. And then they end up doing tokenism, but really what it is is about recognizing who's in the room. And so that's the opposite of being colorblind or, or, you know, inclusive without being equitable to, to just know who's in the room and recognize that there are all these identities and dynamics at play and recognize where there are privileged identities and there's historically marginalized identities and that there's intersectionality of identities where if someone has more, you know, whatever those intersections are and to, to, to understand that that's all happening and that we can be aware and respectful and listen and to really emphasize where our own biases are getting in the way of listening or of including someone's voice. And I think when we come from that place, we can avoid tokenism. Certainly. Any final advice or final thoughts that you would suggest to other organizations, communities, schools? I mean, our listeners come from many walks of environmental sustainability and outdoor education. So uh, Sylvia, any final thoughts? Yeah, thanks, Ian. My final thoughts or advice would really be to, again, just take some sort of action yesterday. And if you can't do it yesterday, do it today. Build community around this work. This is not work that can be done alone, whether that's as alone as a person or alone your organization by itself or alone you, the only person on your team. And create systems and structures for everyone's voice to uh, be included in a meaningful way. Yeah, stay humble and stay active. And Derek. Yeah, I I think for me, uh, a suggestion would be uh, to encourage folks uh, to engage in peer-to-peer equity learning uh, at similar levels. So if someone's in the C-suite, they're an executive, have that executive meet with other executives who are also in the journey, you know, with accountability. Or if someone's a board member, you know, have board members from other organizations uh, work together as a community of practice. And, And if someone's on the line staff, you know, maybe someone does communications or someone is doing program delivery or someone's in the classroom, get classroom teachers together with classroom teachers, get program staff with program staff, not just within your organization, but that uh, working together in a kind of bigger context. Uh, I don't think we can solve these systems or change these systems without uh, working together across, out, you know, within not just within organizations, within ourselves, but across other organizations in the broader community. And then the other one is to get back to, for those who are in um, schools and in classrooms, to really listen to students and for administrators to and board members to listen to the teachers um, and to challenge um, ourselves and, and challenge our, our institutions, our schools to keep track of and to continually make improvements even when it's tough. Well, thank you so much for 
sharing your insights and taking us deeper into this discussion, which we always hope with every episode of this podcast, we hope that the discussion continues as listeners branch off into their own circles. And there's a lot of work to do. We do need to work and start yesterday, but we are seeing some momentum. And I think at E3 Washington, we're seeing it in spades. And I thank you for the ongoing work that you're doing. And thank you both very much for your time today. You're welcome. Thank you. You're welcome, Ian, and thank you so much, too. Back at the main school building, you write on the tally sheet which salmonberry shrubs you checked, adding a note about the thick, living soil you sampled. Your composting system is working, and all it took was an embrace of nature's principles. That is, after all, the beauty of permaculture. Talking with Green Teachers is co-hosted by Ian Shanahan and me, Sofia Vargasnesi. Ian is the show's writer and editor. Logo design is by Devin Terian. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or iTunes to get instant access to each new episode. If you really like the show, give us a rating too. We can also be found wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us in this episode. We'll chat again soon. As represented, as represented, represented, I don't know how to say that word, represented, represented. thank you, there we go, (laughs) as represented.